Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Switch Statement Podcast. It's a podcast for investigations into miscellaneous tech topics. This is our ninth episode on Masters of Doom by David Kushner. Hey, John. What's going on? Hello, Matt. Uh, it's going quite well. How are you doing? I am doing all right. No news to report. Do you have anything interesting in your life? Uh, not really. I mean, I just went to Florence and saw the Duomo, which was really, really cool. Now, what Uh, is a Duomo? So the Duomo is a massive church, one of the largest churches in Europe. And it has, I think, the largest dome. I mean, at least from that era. It's a larger dome than the Pantheon, which is another kind of famous dome structure built during ancient Roman times. Um, And I actually read a book about the dome's construction called Brunelleschi's Hmm. Dome. Very interesting book. If you're interested in domes, I'd recommend it. <laughs> Dude, um, let's make that but, the next uh, the next <laughs> book. I mean, it was interesting from an engineering standpoint because it discusses all the various just contraptions that Bernaleski had to devise. I mean, the guy was a genius, like no doubt in my mind. He was like, and, and it's funny because a lot of these things were invented back during Roman times when the Pantheon mm-hmm. was constructed, but he basically had to reinvent them because this was during the era where knowledge would just get straight up lost. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he, he invented or reinvented a bunch of stuff. It was cool. Um, but today we're talking about, talking about video games, not talking about domes. Unless, yep. I don't know, were there any domes in Doom? Doom domes? Well, I don't know if John Carmack cared about domes, but he did care about Ferraris. He's a famous fast car guy. And this chapter starts out with him buying a Ferrari and being disappointed at how slow it is. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Which is just, it's just very John Carmack. So he there found is some... A, there is a funny point early on where they talk about how the Ferrari dealer, like, kind of thumbs his nose at the idea that, like, someone would, would tinker with the Ferrari. Like it's no, this is a machine given to you by God. Like you're not going to touch it. <laughs> um, and yeah. you know, Carmack was like, get the fuck out of here. It's, this is yeah. just another machine. Yeah. I thought this was good writing because it plays into how Carmack works so well where, you know, he bought this absolutely top of the line, you know, height of technology device he was disappointed with it, and he immediately wanted to like tinker with it himself to improve it. And that's what he did. He contacted some mechanic. I want to say his name is Norwood. And the mechanic was able to install a turbo into John Carmack's Ferrari so that he could go 140 miles an hour on the highway. I think that there is something to be said for this mindset kind of in the abstract where... I think the most fantastic engineers are people who don't care at all about like boundaries or like, it's like you have a problem and then you spend a while looking at your own code and you're like, okay, I looked this through. My code is fine. Like some, if some people look at the like other system, they would be like, all right, well, I don't know. The problem is, is in the other system. But then Carmack just like completely does not care at all. Like doesn't even really see the distinction. He's like, all right, like I'm going to go into this other thing and like tinker around with it because that seems to be where I need to optimize. 
Um, exactly. That's why I thought this tiny story was so effective. Cause I think exactly like what you're saying, this is so Carmack's personality. Like he just wants to tear things open and improve them and he doesn't care. And I like your term of ignoring boundaries. Cause I, I do think that's like a hundred percent what he did. And it, this section even segues into another interesting sections on BSP <laughs> binary space partitioning. Yeah. Dude, I love that they got into this. Which is, it's another example of boundary breaking because he even mentions how, and maybe we should give a brief description on BSPs. And I, like, I'll just start by saying I'm not like some BSP expert, but it's binary space partitioning. The idea is that you take a space and you partition it into subspaces. And then you can take each of those subspaces and partition them again. It's a recursive algorithm, so it can get arbitrarily deep. And that way, if you have this BSP, you can very quickly hone in on individual parts of your scene, and then you're dealing with this little micro part of your scene. So for instance, if you're calculating collisions, it's a very cheap operation to say like, oh, this entity that's in a whole other quadrant of the scene is not colliding with this other entity. You know, I don't have to do any of the more expensive like mesh collision calculations mm. because they're not even in the same, you know, octant. Uh, yeah, quadrant would be for a 2D scene. Octant would be for a 3D scene. Um, so anyway, it's just, it's a way of just hyper-optimizing things. And they discuss how Carmack used this to hyper-optimize the rendering of Doom. It's incredible. The whole boundary-breaking aspect of it is Carmack applied BSPs to his 3D engine, which was like a very novel thing at the time. Right. You know, BSPs existed. They were being used for other applications, but no one had thought to like apply it to, you know, a 3D video game engine. And so that's where I think Carmack, one of his many areas of genius is that he's sort of able to like understand the connections between things that people, other people just can't see. Right, right, right. And then, and that's, that's also goes back to our idea where like being exposed to these new ideas and like combining them in novel ways is sometimes like even more powerful than like the, having the idea itself, you know, because you, you <laughs> see how, how it can be used. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, they mention a newcomer, Sandy, <laughs> who I really, yeah. What did you think of Sandy? <laughs> Dude, I love this guy. Uh, the way they discuss him is hilarious. Cause like he's Mormon and the yeah. team is is initially nervous about hiring a Mormon. They're like, we don't want some religious fanatic on our team. Uh, but it turns out that Sandy fits right in. Like he just yeah. starts blowing demons up and he just has no problem with what they're doing. Yeah. Talk about not judging a book by its cover. I mean, Romero is like very directly like, I don't want a religious person on our team. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, it it really just speaks to like jumping to conclusions it's like okay if this person is religious like they're not going to be okay making a game about demons it's totally wrong and he's like literally a card-carrying mormon like they do they do this uh, basically uh romero does this accidental like mormonness evaluation uh where he kind of yeah. goes down the line but you're not like a card-carrying mormon and sandy whips out his card like but you don't wear like the underclothes and he's like i got him right here they are just kind of further reinforcing that just because you are an adherent to a particular 
religion like doesn't mean that you're not okay with like working with these things you can kind of have that mental separation where it's like this isn't real life exactly that's one of the things they say about sandy in this chapter is you know they're just cartoons he has no issues with it because it's it's purely just a cartoon so uh i really like sandy i thought i think he's a cool guy i feel like they talk about him a lot more in this book and he's just a overall cool guy yeah it just felt wrong though it's the kind of thing where you really liked the last guy and like they left on a sour note. So the new person has a role they just cannot fill. Sandy sounds cool, but I also hate him a little bit because <laughs> right. he He's replacing the Tom. replacement to Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, at least in terms of fitting in with the rest of id, it does sound like Sandy has very complimentary level design skills to Romero. Yeah. Uh, they both design great levels, but they just approach it very differently. Whereas they mentioned in the last chapter that Tom's levels, I feel like they use the word banal. Like they just said his levels were boring, basically. Um, which could have just been the, the difference of opinion sort of manifesting itself. But uh, it does appear that Sandy's sensibilities fit in much better with the rest of their level design. Well, it speaks to three different approaches that you can take where it's like, I think in a world where Tom is you know, cares a lot more about story. He has this like very realistic scenery and it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not like super brash and like bold with all these colors. But if you're telling a, a story where you care about the characters, you don't need the environment to be super dramatic. And then mm -hmm. Sandy's levels are not beautiful, but they're super fun to play, which kind of speaks to his history. He get his, got started playing pen and paper games he yeah. really cares about how fun is it to actually play like he's not necessarily a visual designer and then romero it's like yeah i want this to look awesome but he's not as good at making something that's like super fun to play um, exactly they mentioned one of my personal favorite games of all time mist mist they don't have kind things to say <laughs> yeah dude i mist i feel is still one of the top selling games of all time, uh, and for good reason. I mean, Mist was like completely incredible at the time. In a lot of ways, very different from what it was building. In fact, I think there was a section where they talked about how the guys didn't like the game because it was like, you know, Mist is like a point and click adventure. It's just like a series of still, mostly still images with some videos. Um, but the the graphical detail is super high fidelity, whereas the id games were kind of low fidelity graphics, but like highly intense action and the kind of nonstop violence. And so they're sort of on two opposite sides of a spectrum, but mist was an incredible, incredible game. I just got a meta quest three and they ha they remade mist in VR. So, uh, oh, have dude. you ever, have you played the VR version of mist? I have not. That sounds amazing dude, though. I have not, I have not tried it yet, but I, I want to, I want to do it. I actually bought it a couple years back on the desktop being like, I'm going to play this. And I never got around to it. But maybe I think instead of going through the old way, I've heard that the VR version is like very faithful and like very good. So uh, I'm going to check it out. Nice. Okay. I want to hear about your experience. Like in this chapter, they're really getting down to the wire in terms of like releasing doom, right? They like, they have told people that it's, 
going to get released by Q3 of 1993. That deadline kind of comes and goes. But there's actually, there's a pretty good reason for why it might have taken them like a little longer than uh, than they were originally intending, right? Carmack is uh, is adding just a little, you know, a little add-on at the end, right? Yeah. No, and yeah. this is this is why I was saying earlier how insane Carmack is, because he made multiplayer deathmatch. <laughs> and this was in the 90s, like in the early 90s. That is a problem that even today is still incredibly hard to solve, you know, like having the game state be shared in this like consensual, they use the word consensual at one point, which I thought was funny, but basically it means that all of the clients are sort of consenting that the game state is, uh, you know, is what it is. So you need some sort of server that like maintains it anyway, incredibly, incredibly difficult technological problem. And Carmack gets it running in a week <laughs> and it's the team all plays unbelievable. it. Yeah, it's it's t- completely unbelievable. And Romero plays it, and he's like, "This is bigger than Dave," uh, where Dave was kind of their original remake of of Super Mario, um, and he was right. I mean, Deathmatch, huge, huge, huge innovation. Yeah, I mean, I I personally like. I don't know. I don't like playing multiplayer games, but it's like I can respect like how difficult a challenge that it really it really is so um and like again it's like this is why this is why i say it's frustrating because it's like networking is easily well it's got to be one of the most difficult parts of programming like sure like when you're when you're running a program on one machine things are coming in one after another like you just have a single user like that's one thing it's just like a whole other thing when you need to worry about like all these like ordering problems of like receiving packets like you you have these switches you have different latencies things are coming like yeah it's unbelievable it's also it's also so different like i think there's a big misconception about software which is like oh he's a he's a software engineer he can build anything you know he can build a graphic system or he can build a networking system but developing those two systems It's almost like two different expertises. I mean, it is two different expertises that you can literally spend your whole life learning. So Carmack's ability to jump between, you know, completely innovating the world of 3D graphics and then just in a week completely innovate the world of like video game networking software. It's completely insane. And it's just a testament to how amazing he was. It's absolutely unbelievable and I, I mean they they do talk about the fact that they're basically workaholics like yeah they're working yeah. constantly and like that's the only way you could pull something like this off i think they just have to be working 16 hour days every single day oh yeah no there was actually a point uh just to bring it back to my florence italy trip uh so we saw these michelangelo's you know michelangelo did the sistine chapel which is this just utterly unbelievable massive fresco painting that exists on the top of the, the, you know, this chapel that abuts the Vatican. But he also did all these sculptures all over Italy and Florence and Rome. And at one point I turned to a guide and I was like, how did Michelangelo even accomplish all of this? You know, did he have like a bunch of cronies sort of working for him? And the guide was like, dude, just worked nonstop. Like never, never put the chisel down, never put the you know, the brush down, like Michelangelo is apparently like a famous workaholic 
And yeah, just to your point, like that's the, really the only way you can achieve this sort of thing in life is just to constantly be working. I also heard, I heard that the Sistine Chapel was actually, it was basically like, it was a burden. Like the, the, he was granted that, that job, like as like kind of a fuck you, like no one can do this. This is going to be a nightmare. And it was like, the, he, he kept on like getting paint in his face while he, while he was on this crazy platform. Uh, yeah, literally back-breaking work, or yeah. almost literally. It's not like he broke his back. But yeah, he was in constant pain after working on it all day, sitting sitting on his back, like you're saying, and having paint fall all over his face. So yeah, uh, incredible achievement, but definitely a workaholic. Uh, just like just like John Carmack. Um, yeah. <laughs> also similar in that he did, you know, architecture, painting, sculpture. You know, he was kind of a... I almost said a renaissance man. (laughs) Anyway. um, So yeah, kind of, kind of similar in a way. John Carmack, Um, the modern day Michelangelo. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So when, you know, at the end of this chapter, we start to get to where like the rubber meets the road about like their, their new distribution model. And this is something that I did want to bring up in terms of like, in the shareware, they actually had to ship people physical games, right? Like, mm-hmm. they gave them a little bit, and then they had to ship them a real game. Someone had to, like, pay the money, and then they needed to ship them a game. Yeah. But it sounds like they did not do that for this game, right? Yeah, I did not realize this. But, it, yeah, it sounds like they just uploaded the game to some university FTP, which I found hilarious. I was like, this can't be real. But I guess that's how they released it. That poor little server <laughs> didn't know what yeah. hit it. They crashed immediately when they when they finally like released the thing. 125 concurrent users. Like I don't know. That part just cracked me up. Yeah, I know. It's like it's it is funny to hear those numbers because it feels like like uh, okay. At the time, I guess you know the internet was so new that like yeah. they had maybe I don't know 10 students in a, at, at the university who needed to use it simultaneously. Um, so, yeah, so it couldn't, it couldn't hold up the, hold up the weight, but yeah, so that's, that's sort of how this chapter ends. I mean, they, they have this very unique distribution model and they get the shareware version up on this FTP and people just start ravenously downloading it and they kind of leave us in suspense, like how well it actually does, but it seems clear that it's really picking up the demand. The demand is certainly there. So we'll have to wait yeah. until, until the next chapter to see how, how it actually goes. Yep. All right. Well, I'll uh, see you next time, John. See you next time, Matt.